Miss Karen will likely be waiting for them. And it looks like we have a lot of children here today, so, which is very exciting. What a beautiful uh, song to sing about our great God as we lead into the sermon. And I also appreciate uh, Steve's uh, prayers for the message. We need prayers for the message. We need prayers. Every time we go to God's Word, we, not, we must pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and guide us as we open God's Word. Because we know that that's not what the devil wants. The devil does not want the Word of God to be able to speak to us. The, but the Holy Spirit certainly wants to illuminate the Scriptures to us. I don't know much about baseball, but I read the following and thought it was very insightful. On April 12, 2012, the White Sox pitchers, Philip Humber, pitched a perfect game. That is, he retired 27 batters in a row. No walks, no hits. It's a feat that's been accomplished by only 18 pitchers in Major League Baseball's 108-year-old history. So I guess over 108 years before that, before that, uh, 2012, only 18 pitchers had pitched a perfect game. But then that November of that same year, November of that same year, 2012, the White Sox cut him from their team roster. Now why would you cut a perfect pitcher from your roster? An article in Sports Sports Illustrated uh, zeroed in on Humber's deadly character flaw. His character flaw was perfectionism. The article's subtitle read, For one magical April afternoon, Philip Humber was flawless. But that random, uh, that random smile from the pitching gods came with a heavy burden, the pressure to live up to a standard no one can meet. The article continued. The biggest problem with Humber wasn't his talent. It was, according to those Close to him, the unrealistic expectations he set for himself. He's a perfectionist, says Robert Ellis, a former mentor to Humber. Humber admitted after the game it was like, I've got to prove that the perfect game was not a fluke. I almost felt like I had to prove that I deserved to be on that list. I was thankful for it, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure that everyone knew that this wasn't a joke. I'm, I'm really good enough to do this. Every time Humber took them out, he tried to be the pitcher he was in Seattle. But competence seemed unattainable, much less perfectionism. In his next start, he allowed nine runs in five innings, much less perfection. In his next start, oh wait, nine runs in five innings. Two outings later, he was bombed for eight runs in two and one-third innings. Every time he fell short of the new standard he set for himself, he pushed himself harder. He began spending more time than ever in the video room. He played with every imaginable grip for his pitches. He threw extra bullpen sessions. He ran more. He lifted more. He asked his teammates how how they dealt with their struggles. He couldn't understand why he couldn't recapture the magic. I just feel lost, Humber said. The article concluded with a ray of hope. Philip Humber doesn't know what will come next in his baseball story. This he knows. He's done chasing perfection. Maybe some of us deal with the same problem here and there. My theme today is the Jewish people had a zeal for the law, but missed Jesus 
who is the end of the law. Jesus is the end of the law. The Jewish people had a zeal for the law. They had a zeal. They wanted to keep it perfect. They wanted to keep the Old Testament law perfect. But they missed Jesus. And don't take my word for that. Take, take Jesus, uh, Paul's word for it in just a minute. They had, they, and, and Paul is one to talk, right? In Philippians 3, he said, as a Pharisee, he kept the law perfectly. He wanted to chase perfection. And yet, missed Jesus. So my application for all of us is make sure we are trusting in Jesus for salvation, but also pray for the salvation of others. You know, uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are heavy in doctrine. Maybe you've noticed that. Heavy in doctrine, heavy in theology. And then in a few weeks, about a month probably, we're going to get into Romans 12 through 16. And then we get into ethics. We get into our, our living. The doctrine, always lives, the doctrine always leads to our living. And, and maybe I shared this last week. I forget where I share what. But, you know, I preached through Ephesians when I first came here. In Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, we have something like 42 imperatives. I think I did say this, but repetition is important, so it's good. 42 imperatives in the book of Ephesians. And 41 of them, imperatives are do this, do that. You know, they're commands. And, and, and 41 of them come in Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. What's in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3? I'm glad you asked. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, it's doctrine. The doctrine leads to the do's. <laughs> the doctrine leads to the imperatives. It's the same way in Romans. We have all this doctrine, and because of the doctrine, it leads to how we behave, how we respond. The doctrine of salvation which the Apostle Paul's been writing about, leads right here to care about salvation for others. We're going to see in this passage Paul's desperate care for the salvation of, his, of, of, of his, the Jewish people, of his brothers in Judaism. He desperately wants his ethnicity, Israel, to be saved. The doctrine changes our behavior. I want to put this passage in context first. You know, Paul has been talking about how God can do with nations as he pleases. In Romans chapter, we're going to, let me summarize Romans chapter 9, and that will tell us how we got to this place. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, it was about Paul's heart for his brethren, Paul's heart for the Jewish people. Paul wanted to be cursed so they could be saved. Paul wanted to go to hell so that his brethren, the Israelites, could be saved. That's how desperately he wanted the Israelites to be saved. He would be cursed for them. As I shared last week, we see in Romans chapter 9, in antinomy, and I'm, I'm sure you all remember how I defined that word last week, in antinomy, and in case you were one of those that did forget, I'm going to define it for you, in antinomy, which means it's an apparent contradiction, it's a paradox, in Romans chapter 9, we see an apparent contradiction, this antinomy, this is a mystery, there's a mystery, which is God's sovereignty alongside the free will of human beings, God is sovereign, and yet people have free will. God is sovereign, he is in total control, and yet people have free will, and we are also accountable for our, for our actions. How does that work? It's a mystery. It's not a contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction. We can't figure it out. But God is in control, God is sovereign, and yet humans do have free will. God did not create us as robots. How does he balance our free will with his plan? I don't know. If I could solve that, I could apply to be the fourth person of the Trinity. But it's not open. It's not available. We're always trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure it out all the time. I'm trying to figure it out. I, greater minds than me have been trying to figure it out through all of church history. It's a mystery. 
And that goes to show that this uh, Christianity was not invented by humans. Because if we could invent it, we could understand it. We didn't invent it. We don't understand it. It's from God, as C.S. Lewis said about the Trinity. Romans 9 was showing that God is in charge. God is in control. And so far, Paul has given examples in order to show that God is faithful and that God is in charge. His examples are to show that God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to the scriptures. God has not changed his mind. God has not told lies. God has not broke his promises. The people were asking about Israel. Why why isn't Israel believing in the Messiah? I mean, Jesus is an Israelite. He's their guy. Why'd they reject him? And Paul is showing that God has been faithful to his promises. In verses 7 through 13 of Romans 9, Paul showed that the promise to Abraham was going to pass through Isaac, not Ishmael. It wasn't all of the descendants of Abraham. It was through through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then through Jacob, not Esau. In verse 13 of Romans 9, Romans 9, 13, God said that Jacob he has chosen, but Esau he has rejected. In verses 14 through 18, Romans 9, 14 through 18, Paul gives the example of Pharaoh. God raised Pharaoh up for his purposes, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart for his purposes. God has the right to do with nations as he pleases, and Pharaoh was the head of Egypt. Further, Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. In Romans 9, 19 through 29, we talked about how God's providence... We talked about God's providence and that we cannot talk back to God. Remember the example of the, the clay and the potter? The clay cannot look back on the potter and say, why do you make me this way? That would be absurd. God is the creator. We can't talk back to God. God has a right to do with nations as he pleases. A potter has a right to make some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. The potter has a right over the clay. God has a right over nations. God chose Israel for his purposes. And God is being consistent with his word. Paul then used several Old Testament quotes. In fact, as we go through Romans chapters 10 and 11, we are going to see these Old Testament quotes pop up again and again and again. Whereas the Apostle Paul is using the Old Testament, it's almost like he's preaching an expository message on these Old Testament texts to show that God is being consistent with his word. Paul used Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 to show that God was going to call Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to himself. Isaiah 10.22 and 23 is also quoted. Isaiah 1.9 is also quoted to show that God was preserving a remnant. God said 700 years before Christ, God said that the Jewish people were going to reject the Messiah, but God was going to preserve a remnant. God said 700 years before Christ that actually if he did not spare a remnant, they all would have. They all would have gone away into captivity and been gone. In the end of Romans, Romans 9, in Romans 9, 30 through 33, the end of Romans chapter 9, Paul was showing that Gentiles were saved because they had faith. And Jewish people had not been saved because they kept the law without faith. They kept the law without faith. They They were trying to keep it with perfection, but it was about them. It wasn't wasn't about trusting in Jesus, the Messiah. And that could be the case for some of us. We could think, we're doing everything right. We don't need Jesus. We don't need a Savior. But we all need a Savior. Paul quoted from Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14 in order to show that Jesus was a stumbling block. At the end of Romans 9, Paul showed that Jesus became a stumbling block 
to the Jewish people. But what's interesting about that is God told the people that in Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus. 700 years before Jesus even came, God prophesied through Isaiah that the Messiah would be a stumbling block. We talked about that last week. This comes to chapter 10. One source shares this chapter division, the chapter division between Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10. This chapter division signals a shift in Paul's emphasis. A shift in Paul's emphasis from God's dealings with Israel in the past, namely before Christ's death, to his dealings with them in the present. So Paul is shifting from God's dealings with Israel before Christ to now God's dealings with Israel in the present. So let's look at this passage. Let's look at Romans 10, 1 through 4, and we're going to see Paul's desire for Israel. What is the Apostle Paul's desire for Israel? Romans 10 begins much like Romans chapter 9. Romans 10, 1 shares this. This is how verse 1 reads. We're going to read it together. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 shares, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, who is the them? Paul's talking about his desire for the Israelites. This is much like Romans chapter 9. What is his desire? What is his heart's desire for his brethren? What is his heart's desire for his ethnic group? What is his heart's desire for the Israelites? He says it, that they may be saved. But step back a little bit and notice how Paul addresses them. He addresses them as brothers. Or it could be translated as brothers and sisters. He's saying, brothers and sisters. My heart's desire for them. Uh, my Prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. I think it was Dr. Rydelnik, a professor at Moody Bible Institute, who shared, this is the only verse in the Bible about praying for lost people. And this is about the Jewish people. The only verse in the Bible specific to praying for lost people. There's lots of prayers that we can declare the gospel, things like that. But this only verse in the Bible that's specific about praying for lost people. And this is about praying for the Jewish people to be saved. Really, really powerful application there. Paul is writing here about the Jewish people, which would be Israel. And Paul's desire and prayer for them is that they would be saved. Now, let me ask you. Let me ask us. Let me ask. I always... Pray these convictions over myself first. Are we praying for people to be saved? Are we praying for the effectual work of God for the salvation of other people? John Piper makes this quite applicable. He writes this. Uh, John Piper writes, Paul prays that God would convert Israel. Paul prays for Israel's salvation. He does not pray for ineffectual influences, but for effectual influences. Get the difference. Paul does not pray for ineffectual influences, but he prays for effectual influences. He's a praying for influences that would affect a change, that would affect the salvation in the Israelites. And that can only come from God because salvation is from the Lord. And we need to be praying for people to be saved because it has to happen from the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. Piper continues. He prays for effectual influences, and that is how we should pray too. We should take the new covenant promises of God and plead with God to bring them to pass in our children and our neighbors and on all the mission fields of the world. And now I like how John Piper uses scripture. Listen to this. God, this would be our prayer. God, take out of their flesh the heart of stone and give them a new heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 
11, 19. Circumcise their hearts so that they love you. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Father, put your spirit within them and cause them to walk in your statutes. That's praying Ezekiel 36, 27. Grant them repentance and a knowledge of the truth that they may escape from the snare of the devil. That's praying 2 Timothy 2, 25 through 26. Open their hearts so that they believe the gospel. That's praying Acts chapter 16, verse 14. When we believe in the sovereignty of God, in the right and power of God to elect and then bring hardened sinners to faith and salvation, then we will be able to pray with no inconsistency and with the confidence of great biblical promises for the conversion of the lost. Thus, God has pleasure in this kind of praying because it ascribes to him the right and honor to be the free and sovereign God that he is in election in salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. And many times we might think we just need to argue a certain way or debate a certain way or no apologetics. And I love apologetics and I even love arguing. Stop by my office sometime. We'll talk, you know. But salvation and discipleship and all of that is from the Lord. We cannot affect the change. Many times you may be talking to somebody, uh, maybe a family member or something about the gospel. And you might be wondering, why am I not getting through? I shared all of the best arguments that I heard for the gospel. Why am I not getting through? Why are they not believing? A, they could have a hardened heart. There is an element of free will. And with that hardened heart, the Holy Spirit has to get through. And we must pray. I believe no one comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, except that somebody prayed for them. All of you here who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, or all those watching virtually or watching later on, all of you who know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I strongly believe for all of us, it happened because people were praying. For some of you, it was your parents or your grandparents. I hope that you are praying for your children, for your grandchildren to know the Lord. For others, it might have been somebody you did not even know. Listen to this story I read. One person writes, my wife Angie went to a rough high school. There were few, few Christians there apart from one teacher, Mr. David Button, who taught manual arts. Years after Mr. Button left his position, dozens of his former students became believers. Many have entered the ministry and become pastors and missionaries. I tracked down Mr. Button, who is now 70 years old and retired. He was stunned and choked with emotion when I told him of the many conversions since he had taught at that high school, many of the people he taught became committed followers of Jesus. This person continues, I wondered how his influence had brought such a harvest. He told me that many times he had prayed softly over his classes as he sat back in his desk and watched them work. But apart from this, he'd done nothing to influence these students toward Christ. The only common point of spiritual connection the students shared was that they were prayed over by their teacher. That's powerful. Sometimes we think all we can do is pray. The least we can do is pray. That's the most we can do. Now, sometimes, understand, you prayed and God wants you to call somebody up and talk to them. God wants you to do. God wants you to do things. But the first and most important thing we can do is pray. Got a text from a friend last night, a pastor friend. He was watching the Hall of Fame stuff for uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There's a sport. It's called Pro Football. Maybe you've heard of it. And they had the Hall of Fame um, over the weekend. And, and he said there were many, many athletes giving tribute to Jesus. 
That's awesome. The reason I think about this is I was good friends. I am good friends. I think I'm still good friends with, with um, a man who works at the Pro Football of Fame. And we used to meet and run together and pray together. And in, I think it was like 2014, he told me uh, they got a new director of the Hall of Fame, executive director. And he said something like uh, 15, 16 years of working for the Pro Football of Fame. And that day, he just got home from a meeting. It was a Saturday, and he was excited. That day was the first time they prayed in the boardroom. The executive director of the Hall of Fame led them in prayer together. You know, that was a mo- and, then, and then my friend, the reason I bring this up, talked to other people who worked at the Hall of Fame. And, and one was, I believe, a custodian, if I recall correctly. And he would go through the rooms and pray for those rooms, pray over that area. How awesome it is. The most important thing we can do to affect change is prayer. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. He says, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they would be saved, that they would know the Lord. Now let's move on. Let's look at verse 2. Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Paul continues, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about his kinship. He's talking about his ethnic group. He's talking about the Jewish people. They have a zeal for God, which is a good thing, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but Jesus has become a stumbling block. They have a zeal for God, but they miss Jesus. Their zeal is not according to knowledge. They follow the law to perfection, like that picture in the beginning of the sermon I shared about. They follow the law to perfection, but without knowledge, or without the knowledge that God was sending a Savior. They were not trusting in Jesus. And Paul will actually explain his meaning in verse 3. Look at the next verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 3. For being ignorant, they have a zeal for law, they, they have a zeal for the law without knowledge, and then verse three, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant, they ignored the righteousness of God and Jesus. They were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They thought by just following the law perfectly, they were gonna they were gonna achieve salvation. But they didn't realize that nobody can be perfect enough. So God sent Jesus to follow the law perfectly. They did not submit to God's righteousness. His brethren, the Israelites, the Jewish people, were trying to establish their own righteousness. They thought they could be good enough by keeping the law. There's a pastor. He's on Christian radio. He's written many books. His name's Tony Evans. Tony Evans shares his story. Think of... Things like mixing up iced tea, sweet tea. Sweet tea, I'm told southern sweet tea, and Tony Evans is from the south, is only sweet enough if you can get to the bottom of the cup and you have enough sugar left over at the bottom um, uh, that you can see there and even scrape out with a spoon. Or sweet tea is only good enough if you run out of pancake syrup, you can pour it on your pancakes. That's what I'm told by somebody from the south. Tony Evans says this. He says, many of you are trying to make it to God's heaven by stirring up your own righteousness. Trying to make it to God's heaven by stirring up your own righteousness. You are stirring as hard as you can. Got to live right today. Got to do better today. Got to go to church today. Got to give money today. And you stir and you stir and it's still not sweet. You stirred your life the best you can. But stuff is still settling at the bottom. And it's just not blending in. The sugar is not blending in. The righteousness Jesus Christ offers is the end of your stirring. The righteousness Jesus Christ offers is the end of your stirring. He'll make you into sweet tea. 
He is the end of the law to everyone who believes because he's already fulfilled the law for you. And he's put his spirit, the Holy Spirit, in you. We need Jesus. We can't just think that our righteousness is good enough. Jesus is the end of our struggling there. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They did not submit to God's righteousness. The righteousness of God was and is Jesus. Jesus was completely righteous and died in our place. That's the gospel right there. Jesus being completely righteous and dying in our place. Romans 1.17 For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's got to be faith in Jesus who conquered death for us. They ignored Jesus. And Paul will show that in the next verse. Look at Romans 10.4, the next verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is saying that the law ends with Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. The law was a tutor to lead them to Christ. As I shared last week, remember that Galatians described the law as a tutor to lead them to Christ. That's Galatians 3.24. The law was to lead them to Christ. Galatians 2.16 shows that a person is not justified. That means not made righteous by works of the law, but by faith, trust in Christ. That's why Jesus showed, even if you think you kept the whole law, your heart could be wrong and you missed it internally. John MacArthur shares about that, um, the idea of the end of the law. What does it mean that Christ is the end? And he writes, although the Greek, was uh, the Greek word translated end can, might, can mean either fulfillment or termination, this is not a reference to Christ having perfectly fulfilled the law through his teaching. He did that. That's Matthew 5, 17 through 18. But this is not that. This is also not a reference to Christ fulfilling the law through his sinless life. He did that too. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Instead, as the second half of verse 4 shows, Paul means that belief in Christ as Lord and Savior ends the sinner's futile quest for righteousness through his imperfect attempts to save himself by efforts to obey the law. We cannot save ourselves. Belief in Christ is the end of our futile quest to save ourselves. As the hymn writer, A.M. Toplady, put it, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The only thing God requires of people is that they not persist in trying to earn what they can only receive as a totally free gift. we got to quit trying to earn what we can only achieve by a totally free gift. The gospel is a totally free gift of trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Their problem is that pride, when we try to think we can earn it, the problem is that pride stands in the way of receiving God's gift. Deeply ingrained in people's hostility to divine grace is a proud and stubborn self-reliance that would rather suffer loss than be deprived of an occasion for boasting. It is all about Jesus, though. We can't boast of our salvation. We can't brag about, of, of our salvation. It's all about Jesus. Let's make some applications. Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters. We must address each other in loving language. The Apostle Paul prayed for the salvation of his ethnic group. We, we must pray for our immediate family to be saved. Are you praying for your friends and family to be saved? That is the most important thing that we can do for them is pray for their salvation. Salvation is from God. 
So we must go to God in prayer. We must pray that God would change the hearts of our children so they would turn to him for salvation. We must pray that God would change the hearts of our grandchildren so they would turn to him in salvation. We must pray that our siblings would turn to Christ. We must pray that our parents and grandparents, if they are alive, will be saved. And let me pause right here. Quit thinking. This is the only negative Nelly part here, but it's a reality check. Sometimes we limit salvation thinking if somebody said a prayer back when they were 10 years old, even though they've not exhibited fruit for the last 30, 40 years of their life, they're saved. Knowing Jesus and being saved is more than a prayer. It's a persevering life of knowing and living with Jesus. I fear that some of you are not praying for your children, your grandchildren, and so on, salvation, because you would cling to the fact that they went forward at some altar call at some camp, even though they've been living in sin since then, they weren't dark in the door of a church, and there's no spiritual fruit. Jesus said you will know them by their fruit. Second, Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul said examine yourself to make sure you are saved. We must examine our own life and we must pray that we wake up as a Christian tomorrow. We must pray that we are persevering in the faith. And if your family and your friends are not, are not exhibiting fruit, I'm not telling you to condemn them. I'm not telling you to judge them because only God can do that. But I am telling you to pray for them. We must pray for persevering fruit. We must pray that they for sure are saved. We must pray their ethnic group will be saved. The only hope for America is the same hope it's always been, and it's Jesus. We must pray that those from our neighborhood, our city, and our country will be saved. We must pray for salvation of people. We must understand that zeal alone will not save us. The Israelites had this zeal for God, but they missed Jesus. Now, here's an interesting thing. This little story. Clifton Fodderman in the little brown book of anecdotes tells a story about Vladimir Nabokov. I'm sure you've all heard of him. No, I'm just kidding. I've never heard of him, so I'm going to tell you about him. He was a Russian-born novelist who achieved popular success through his novels. Lalita, written in 1955. I'm sure you've read it. Pale Fire, written in 1962. And Ada, written in 1969. One summer in the 1940s, Nabokov and his family stayed with James Laughlin at Alta, Utah, where Nabokov took the opportunity to enlarge his collection of butterflies and moths. He wanted to enlarge his collection of butterflies and moss. Now, Fodderman relates, this is what happened. Nabokov's fiction has never been praised for its compassion. He was single-minded, if nothing else. One evening at dusk, he returned from his day's excursion, saying that during hot pursuit near Bear Gulch, he had heard someone groaning most piteously down by the stream. So he's out looking for butterflies and moths, and, he, and he's a novelist. And he hears somebody groaning piteously. So you would think you would go and check on someone. Did you stop? Laughlin asked him. No. I had to get the butterfly. The next day the corpse of an aged prospector was discovered in what had been renamed, what has been renamed in Nabokov's honor, Dead Man's Gulch. He missed it. He was so focused for perfection, for butterflies, he missed it. And here's the application. While people around us are dying, how often we chase butterflies. How often we are distracted by other things. How often maybe even Jesus may be a stumbling block for us. Maybe the moral law is a stumbling block. I've been good enough. I've saved myself. 
and we don't recognize we need Jesus. We don't recognize our family and friends need Jesus. Maybe, just going a little further with that application, we're so focused on our work or our hobbies or whatever that we miss Jesus. We're so focused on our work or our hobbies that we never make time in our lives to go and talk about Jesus to our family members. Maybe we don't even pray that our family and friends know Jesus. May that be an application for us. Let's pray. Lord God, may we not miss you. May you not be a stumbling block to us. Lord God, may we truly surrender to you as Lord and as Savior. May we truly never think we said some sinner's prayer, which is very important if it's from the heart. But may we not limit our salvation to that. May we truly persevere in the faith. May we truly follow you all of our days living with you. And Lord God, I think... And have a huge application here. May we, Lord God, pray for the salvation of others that we know. May we truly, Lord God, pray that our family and friends know you as Lord and Savior. That is our first mission field. And without Jesus, we and they have nothing. May we not let anything get in front of you. And oh, Lord, we do fail. We all miss the mark. And that's why we thank you, Jesus, for being our great high priest interceding for us. And Lord God, as always, if someone here needs to surrender to you, may you hear their prayer right now to confess their sins, knowing that you are faithful and you will forgive us for our sins. May we believe in you and commit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.